0: A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian
1: Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering
0: Data-Driven Value at Scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left data stacks. You know, Thanks bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Paul Andrew, Technical Architect at Avenade and Microsoft Data Platform MVP. Paul started by sharing his views of the chicken and egg problem of how much do you build out your data platform and and when to support your data product creation and, and ongoing operations. Is that once you've you built a few different data products out and then you start to build out your platform? Do you build it before? How complex do you build out your platform depending on where you are in your data mesh data product journey? And how that discussion becomes even more complicated in a brownfield deployment that already has existing requirements, expectations, and some templates. For Paul, delivering a single Data mesh data product on its own is not all that valuable. If you're going to go to the expense of implementing data mesh, you need to be able to satisfy use cases that cross domains. And the greater value is in cross domain interoperability, getting to a data product that really wasn't possible before because you're combining data across multiple domains. And you need to deliver the data platform alongside those first two to three data products. Otherwise, you create a very hard-to-support data asset, not really a data product in Paul's view. When thinking about minimum viable data mesh, Paul views an approach leveraging DevOps and generally CI/CD or continuous integration, continuous delivery as very crucial. You need that repeatability slash reproducibility to really call something a data product. We've learned that from the software side of the world as well. In a brownfield deployment, Paul sees leveraging existing templates for security, infrastructure as code, and and all of that as the best path forward. Supplement what you've already built to make it usable for your new approach with data mesh. You've already built out your security and compliance model. Make it into that infrastructure as code to really reduce the friction for new data products and, and make it so that it's easy for scalability. For Paul, being disciplined early in your data mesh journey is key. A proof of concept for data mesh is often only focused on really the data set or the table or the view itself, not actually generating a data product and much less a minimum viable data mesh. It's pretty easy to put yourself in a very bad spot by going down that proof of concept of only going for a a data set or a table because taking that from proof of concept to actual production, it's going to be a very hard transition. And telling users it will take weeks to months to productionalize, it's probably not going to go well. You've already created the data. What do you mean it's going to take that long to really make this into an actual viable data product? So be disciplined to go far enough to test out a minimum viable data mesh instead of just doing a simple proof of concept. Paul emphasized the need for pragmatism in most aspects when implementing a data mesh. Really think about when to take on tech debt and do so with intention. When shouldn't we take on tech debt? And we really should focus on technical purity. And how do we pay down tech debt and, and when? There's always going to be that balance between getting it done now and kind of getting it with kind of getting it done dirty and, and that technical purity aspect. How do we choose what features to sacrifice? What is the time value to money aspect? Or how much importance do we have on getting it done sooner rather than more completely? These are questions you'll ask repeatedly in in a data mesh implementation. Similar to what previous guests mentioned, Paul is working to encourage the data product marketing and discovery process. Discussing with data consumers what they want, you know, kind of that pie in the sky thinking, what, what would you want if you could get everything you wanted? Then taking kind of what people are, are looking for and speaking with the data producers and figuring out, you know, kind of what's pragmatic there, what's a pragmatic approach and, and what aspect of this data product might be super difficult. If that one aspect is going to be super difficult, you go to the consumers and you let them know that that part of it will delay significantly their delivery and, and that they also need to fund that part of it. Do they still want that specific aspect? Use that back and forth discussion to drive negotiations to a valuable solution with less effort on on everybody's part. Look for that return on investment, not just return. You know, wouldn't it be great if we had these 20 different pieces of this data product? Well, number 20 of those 20 pieces is is 80% of the work. Do you really need that? (laughs) Be pragmatic. Paul recommends making business value your general data mesh north star. Ask the pragmatic questions, so shift the data function from taking requests or requirements to negotiation. Have the conversation of is this worth it? Who is going to pay for it? What is it worth worth to them? As of now, Paul and his team, uh, when they're in a consulting engagement, are still often functioning as that kind of translator between data producers and data consumers. But when discussing that goal of getting out of being that middleman slash translator type of role, Paul pointed to a few signs that an organization is ready for producers and consumers to directly work with each other. Some aspects are, you know, kind of what's the general company culture? Is it one that is super, super siloed or or not? How data literate and, and capable are the execs so that they can really understand um, what they're really trying to drive towards and data platform maturity and and a few other aspects. If you can mature your organization's approach and skill level, you can move towards not needing to have that data translator. Paul talked about how to think about your data mesh journey and different elements of it, even a data product, in that kind of crawl, walk, run fashion. Think about your data products first and foremost as serving at least one specific purpose, answering kind of one specific question. Still create those data products with reuse in mind, but they should have a use case to serve and and you can expand it from there. At a mesh level, crawling might be getting to uh, a few standard interfaces for data products to use to communicate. You know, that's not going to be the full mesh level, but that's important to get there from a crawl standpoint. And then when you think about walking, it might be having more interfaces and that there's easy to use reusable blocks that you can just drop into your data product. At the data platform level, a crawl aspect might be getting to a place where it is possible to publish new data sets. But walking might be a significant reduction in friction to that producing those new data products. While well, this all means that a minimum viable mesh is still a pretty high bar. You can get to a place that is comfortable with being at that crawling stage and understanding that you're going to get to the walk and that you're going to get to the run. And it gives you a more simple target for where you want to get to first and that you can really figure out what what you really, really need. We've talked about this in in previous episodes too, figuring out what you really need rather than trying to build it ahead of time when you don't know your real needs. And and kind of thinking of it in that data field of dreams of, you know, if we build it, they will come. And if we build it, it will create value. And it's like you, you really need to have those conversations first and figure out what you're really trying to accomplish. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very excited about today's episode here. I've got Paul Andrew, who's a technical architect at uh, Avanade. And he's also a Microsoft Data Platform MVP. And I had asked Paul on, uh, I started the conversation because he's put out um, a series of of posts about kind of how you would actually create a a data mesh architecture aspect on um, Azure. And you know some of the the stuff is is some of the plumbing side, you know, being a, a data platform MVP. But some of it's also, you know, the pattern side and things like that. So I wanted to kind of get his his view of of things of how we really think about how the platform fits in. And, and so we're gonna kind of cover a bunch of different things about greenfield versus brownfield, all the the different stuff he's learned from working with. Um, You know, clients that are uh, working towards data mesh, looking at it, or actually implementing data mesh. And we're going to kind of start off in that concept of should we think about building out the data platform first or the data products first, or how do we think about that data platform really supporting creation of those data products? um, because, you know, it's all got to kind of tie together, but it's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. So I think it's, it's an important aspect to really think about where we, we jump into and when, and, you know, a lot of people are thinking you have to fully build out your platform first and all that. So, um, with that, Paul, if you don't mind giving a bit of an introduction to yourself, we can kind of jump into the topic at hand.
1: Yeah, sure. Hi everybody. And, uh, thanks Scott for having me on the show. So, I mean, uh, I guess the, the fortunate thing for your viewers is that this is audio only, so they don't get to see just how gray my, my hair is and, and how gray my hair has got over the last few years, uh, working as a, you know, as a data professional in this industry. I think depending on how far you want to go with, with my background, I mean, I, I started life actually as a, you know, first line support on the, the service desk, you know, resetting people's passwords and, um, installing printers and doing all that good stuff so yeah my my background really is I, I guess I could say from the trenches and then then very much leading up to the present day I got um, my data bug probably 20 or so years ago now um, actually creating pivot charts pivot tables from my phone bill to, to find out <laughs> when I text and, and call people the most yeah just a bit of fun but then obviously applied that uh, love of data to to my day job um, as a, sort of a data management BI developer type person way back when, and then you know as we moved from on-premises to to more cloud type technology, made that shift and been then working as a consultant supporting customers in in all sorts of industry verticals since then. So that's it, I guess a bit about me. To to bring it then to, to your yeah, your point about the, the platform versus the, the data product. Uh, I think the the thing that we I guess we just need to be honest and admit to ourselves is that it's hard. It's it's hard to figure out what should come first. And and yeah, it it, it is a a chicken or an egg and I think it really it does nicely feed into that brown field versus green field type setup that you have. Um and particularly as well for for those customers that still have a a very large on-premises estate, and they're looking to migrate to the cloud as well, um, and I think the the way I try and sum up all of those parts is, if we think about you know if we if we want to drive for that data mesh architecture, we can say to ourselves, well, okay, what's what does a a minimum viable data mesh look like? Yeah, we talk about a minimum viable product all the time, but but what does a minimum viable mesh look like? And I think to that, yeah, you know, we we of course we want all of the good stuff in there. We want that platform to to be established, and we want to bring those data products in as well. But yeah, what what can we do to achieve that? It, it feels like maybe we need a. a a parallel approach to it, you know, a a two-pronged attack or a three-pronged attack to delivering the platform while we're looking at establishing our our data products, or you know, at the very least, do we need to deliver one or two data products in that mesh to begin with before you know we, we really see any value of it? Of course that that scalability that we we want to achieve with many data products if they're going to benefit from each other in this this mesh ecosystem then you know one data product on its own i would say isn't viable so it, it does uh, as a consultant you know I, I end up saying it depends a lot to my customers <laughs> uh, and yeah sadly it it is i think it is one of those it depends but yeah a, a two or three pronged attack is perhaps what you require to deliver the platform and maybe to try and deliver two data products? So, you know, that, that three-pronged attack, does that give you then that minimum viable data mesh, possibly?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, um, one thing I see is is a lot of people talking about, you know, data mesh for the sake of data mesh. And I think keeping that eye on what what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And so, you know, when you first start out your your journey, you're trying to, drive towards value and kind of build that muscle and, and your understanding. So thinking about that minimum viable and, you know, Henrik Gothberg on, on his episode talked about um, the like really thinking about what do we need to build out that is repeatable and not getting ourselves into, um, into tech debt right and and this i think is the the thing with the data platform is you can get yourself into a lot of tech debt versus and eh, we can continue to do things manual and we can think of our our data products as v0.1 not 1.0 and and i think that's that's useful on the, on the platform side so you've been working with customers and you know it really does depend i think is is the the thing that i hear from every single consultant and i think that's the thing that frustrates people, but it's also like, if you actually want to do this right, it depends is the correct answer. Like think about how this uh, applies to your, your situation. But so when we think about building out that initial platform to support those first couple of data products, what are you seeing as, as kind of the most important aspects to get there? You know, cause there's the kind of CI/CD, data ops type of, of approach, there's the um, infrastructure as code. Does everything have to be managed as code, or can you kind of be hand managing some pipelines? You know, what 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 have you found is the kind of secret sauce for what you really need to to do to get to minimum viable, right? From both minimum and viable. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it's it's hard. Um, I mean, I, I've obviously got that Microsoft bias, so I'll probably talk about some Microsoft technologies. But but yeah, whatever we want to think about, um, I think the the CI/CD part or the you know the DevOps part is is really crucial. Not just for delivering a, a data mesh solution, but for delivering any you know, data product, software, whatever. You know, we we need we need discipline there. We need good practice. So. What I see is is we will start with that infrastructure as code, and you know we'll supplement it with some some people and process, and and we'll get that um, security model sort of up and running as well. And I think what what happens or what tends to happen is that the the common resources that my customers want to deploy, if it's a, a data factory or databricks or a data lake, they will have their own internal repository and you know template libraries, either either an ARM template or Terraform or you know whatever that may be. So they will they'll probably have that already. And they they might start with that and, and they might reuse those templates to give them that infrastructure as a code. But then when we start thinking about that in the context of what what is going to be a data product that then uses it they will say fine, you know, let's let's take those templates, let's think about the the interfaces that we want or the endpoints that are going to exist for those data products. And they will, you know, they will supplement those templates with other bits of code and things to to get to you know a a set of libraries almost or a, a marketplace of things that the the internal customers can then use. To actually deploy what they need for, for whatever they're going to do. And as you know, I'm sure we're aware, you know, when we go to the, the Azure portal, for example, and we say yes, give me Databricks, you can you know, just do leave all the defaults and next and deploy. But of course, for a lot of enterprise customers, those defaults options, the default configuration, it's, it's not good enough for them. They, they need more. They want additional security or additional customizations and things like that. So we've we've got to start, I think, yes, with that infrastructure as a code to, to make sure that the resources we deploy are compliant for that customer's environment. I think, yeah, that, that's just a good starting point for any solution that you'll probably end up with that. There's the the security model that then comes in, and then there's that process around. Okay, what what does your continuous integration look like? What does your continuous delivery look like? How many environments are, are you going to have for this thing? You know, it, the the lot of customers I see, the four seems to be about the right number at the moment. You know, dev, tests, pre-production, and production. So I think once we've got we've got that ability to deploy what we need and um, that ability to get it through those gateways in, in terms of the environment and, and getting something into production. I think that's that's a, that's a lot of stuff that we've done up front that really sort of helps us on our way in, in delivering what we need.
0: Yeah, and, and one that that's really helpful, I think, because one thing I've been talking about with um, governance is I think in your initial... Uh, data products, you, you don't think as much about how, you know, you, especially if you've got two data products that you're looking at, you can kind of have that manual interoperability. You don't have to have the governance all worked out, but you have to do kind of CYA governance of, you know, cover your butt kind of governance, and then you can figure out the rest of the stuff. So I think that security model is is really important. And a couple of people have talked about you know, this data product would be more valuable if we had PII in it or sensitive information. But to start, we don't have great templates for um, our our PII masking and, you know, all that. So we just left the PII out. Yes, it would be more valuable. Yes, we want to include it. Yes, we actually have that data in the data product landing zone so that when we have our template, we, we already have the data there. It's, it's ready to be added to it, but it's just not accessible right now. So I think that's, that's really interesting. And, and I haven't heard many people talk about that CICD being so crucial. Is that from, uh, like a repeatability, scalability or trustability, or is it ease or like what, why is that CICD? So a couple of people have said, you know, you can do a lot of this stuff very, very manually to start, but, um, you're saying that you'd you'd kind of err much more on the not letting it be so manual. What, like, help me understand your, your point of view on that. I'm not saying one's right or wrong. Um, You know, I think if if you can get to CICD, you do want to do that as early as possible. But like, what, what what is it that you think adding that in the early phases is, is is the most useful? I think it, It's just about discipline and getting into
1: that mindset, because, you know, I've seen people do pilots and and proof of concepts. And and yes, it's very, you know, very quick. It's very easy to iterate because it's a a single environment proof of concept that you're working with. Um, You know, and that's fine. And and I've seen proof of concepts. You know, we, we, we prove the concept. It's great. It works. We want to move forward with what we're then doing and somebody says fine can you take everything that you delivered for the proof of concept and now you know look at deploying it again and, and giving me the the next version of it that we could take as our version 0.1 or whatever and the 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 answer comes back of well no <laughs> because when we created that proof of concept we were just figuring it out we were you know very quick and manual and and using interfaces and whatever and failing fast which which yeah is fine but it means then that suddenly we've proved the concept you know tick but then actually when we start to build something real we then end up with a a massive lead time between the proof of concept being you know successful and starting with that actual environment and i've had yeah program managers project managers whoever come to me and say well why does it take us so long to get from a proof of concept to actually delivering the environment? And the, the answer I've seen is, well, because we didn't have those CICD type practices instilled within what we were doing from the beginning. So, yeah, you end up with that, that sort of massive lead time between going from a POC to something real as, as one example of, of why it could be quite important.
0: That, that's interesting. I talked to somebody else who's who's going to be on um, in, in the next uh, few episodes, who kind of had that same view about proof of concept. And and I guess when I'm thinking of proof of concept, it's proof of concept of a data mesh is so much different than proof of concept of a data product, right? Is is that is that how you think about it too? Because that proof of concept needs to have that viability. You need to figure out can we build this muscle to actually do this? Not, can we do a proof of concept to say, can we create, you know, valuable analytical data? If you can't do that, then you're just, you know, you're not nowhere near ready for this. But do you think of that proof of concept or that proof of value or viability needs to include that that aspect as well of the, um, the CICD approach and the or, or what would we automate? Or, hey, or, or that you start with a much lower kind of target that is um, easy to actually get to repeatability for your proof of concept, that you don't go for something quite as complicated to put together, that it's, it's something that is only um, uh, refreshed on a daily basis and that it's not the most complicated of logic and that you could manage it relatively manually until you get there.
1: Yeah, I think short answer then. Then yeah, absolutely. But and and um, yeah, to to your point, I've seen I've seen technology comes along and we use it, we play around with it, and it, and it solves the problem, and we think yeah, great. But then you know suddenly because that piece of technology maybe in a, a Microsoft world is so new that actually the configuration or, or the the parts that we need to deploy it aren't supported in Terraform yet. You know, Terraform's a third party. They, they don't cover everything. Maybe there's a lead time. So, yeah, something like that could uh, have seen happen where, where yes, let's we, we've got a proof of concept. We've got the tech. We want to use it. Oh, actually, there isn't a Terraform template for it yet or there's some part of Terraform that doesn't support it you know, because there's just a lead time in, in Terraform doing what they need to do to, to bring their own libraries up to date. Yeah, which is is perfectly fair. So, I think yeah. To back to the point of, it's absolutely if we're considering CICD, we're considering that good practice. Then it, it's something that that really should be thought about from the beginning to make sure you've covered all those options and you, know, you don't find any surprises.
0: Yeah, and I think, or that you you set those expectations right. It's like. This is the the big issue that I have when people talk about uh, stuff with the data lake and, and things like that is you f- might find this really, really valuable data resource, but you don't know if it's being updated. And so you don't know the process that it took to get updated and can it be repeatable? You know, um, I, I had this being um, kind of uh, on the business operation side, you know, I'll go through a very, very complicated thought process to take raw data and do it's not you know five transforms it it will be 400 500 transforms as i'm trying to you know beat the data into submission to tell me different facts and so i might have you know fact 1 or you know uh, what the data tells me for number 1 and then number 2 and number 3 and number 4 and number 5 but i can't get the data back into the shape to tell me number 1 again very easily and so then it's like okay let's go through all these different steps and and so do you think about when when we get to that that proof of concept again what i'm seeing is is people jumping to trying to do complicated data sets and things like that versus what i've kind of been telling people is fine look for the roi instead of the return when you're thinking about your your proof of concept of we want to go for low low investment, high ROI, right? Where where it might not be the most valuable thing you could do, but it's a quick win and it's relatively low investment and it's relatively low difficulty. Are, are you finding that one that people are willing to do that, <laughs> or do they want to go for those home runs instead of let's hit? You know, well, I guess. You're, you're in the uh, um, UK, so maybe uh, go for the single instead of the the four or the six-bagger on cricket or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not going to try and use any sports analogies there. I'll, I'll probably embarrass myself even more than you. But, um, yeah, I think definitely, of course, yeah, we're, we're all trying to get that value, that insight from that data, uh, and we're all trying to do it as quickly as possible using whatever tools we've got available. So, so yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting problem. Yeah, do we? It, and and I think the, the the key word here just has to be pragmatism. We we have to be pragmatic with what do we do? Yeah, you know, do we really go for what what I call technical purity? I I, I use it the word my customers a lot. Of that that technical purity of of you know we do everything in the most disciplined, you know, most due diligent way, and we get the We get all of the libraries and and all of the boilerplate code, and and it's brilliant. Um, But, of course, that means a massive upfront investment. So we have to be pragmatic. What do we sacrifice with our delivery process that means that the person that, yeah, wants that return on the investment gets it sooner? Um, And I think that pragmatism, it has to come from all directions the the maybe the the delivery process we we have to be pragmatic on what we sacrifice the the cost of the platform maybe you know we if we venture into the the reliability of it you know thinking about some of the the non-functional requirements of, of disaster recovery failover things like that you know do we have to bake all of that stuff in from day one and if the answer is yes, then of course that means we have to do a, a whole load of, of upfront engineering, which means that, yeah, that return on the investment just gets kicked down the road another six months or something. And people don't want to hear that. So, yeah, it, it, pragmatism is maybe the, the takeaway there.
0: Well, and, and how do you think about having that conversation? Um, I mean, you know, I think negotiation instead of, Requirements is the number one thing that I'm hearing from a lot of folks. But like, h- how do you think about um, having that conversation, especially around this is like we need to be pragmatic around that, but this is technical debt. Take intention that you are bringing on, you are creating technical debt with this. And, and are we creating a solution that we can't migrate away from versus are we creating uh, something that is okay for right now, but that we can migrate away from? Right, that we're not, we're that it's it's um, it's tape. It's not that we're hot gluing it together when it needs to be welded, but then we can't actually weld it together because we've got the hot glue in there, and and it's it's just going to create more of a mess trying to weld it. Versus we're we're taping it, and we understand that it's it's just taped together at this point.
1: Yeah. It- yeah technical debt is is definitely a, a a subject that gets a lot of attention doesn't it It can generate a lot of argument i um i did I did write a blog recently um just to try and define technical debt um to to support uh, to some delivery work that I was doing and um, one of the the things I tried to define there was around just compliance of the platform and and the resources because if we deliver something now and we find later it's not compliance, then we, we incur all that tech debt, and so maybe we have to revisit. Or um, the I, I talked about the, the strategic approach versus the, the tactical approach that we have to take. You know, where in our technical roadmap do we make a key design decision that says, yes, you know, we, we want this, we want some technical purity, but actually in reality. We can't do that now. We take the tactical approach. We deliver some value, and then we yeah, we get chance to iterate and gain that momentum. And we get to then revisit that technical debt, and then we then get to take the the strategic technical purity route because yeah we, we can. I think you, you've got to deliver something to to have the ability to fail fast and iterate. If you try and front load too much, then you end up taking too long to deliver anything and then you never get a chance to recover. You might have the best platform in the world, but you know, if you've got no output from it, you've got no value from it, then, you know, is, is that great platform really worth anything?
0: Yeah. The, the folks, Goran and uh, Alden at Nav um, in their episode, kind of Goran is, you know, a data person. And he talked about if I'm, if I'm, creating something. I can create the most cool, amazing platform of all time, but the users won't, the developers won't want to use it. Right. <laughs> like, there's yeah. that aspect too of, we think that this is going to be the the thing that um, people are really, really going to want to use. And then uh, you find out that that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> and so um, I mean, It's, it's, I know it all depends and things like that, but when you're having those conversations with, with people and you're asking them to, to make the choices, you know, again, negotiation ends up being, negotiation doesn't have to be combative. Negotiation can be cooperative negotiation of like, Hey, like we need to think about these offsets. We need to say, okay, if you want this, it is going to take six months. If we want to do this, it's fine. We'll do that. But like, let's, let's figure out how we get there. But like, how are you finding that conversation around data? What what I've found with data folks is that historically, especially with the data warehouse, you were trying to thread the needle, right? You were you were doing all this pre-work and it was locked in and that you didn't think about iteration. You, you because it was that you tried to lock as much value as you could up front and then just kind of hold on for dear life as as things started to crumble around, <laughs> right? As things started to change and you're just like, okay, but we want to just keep trying to maintain exactly what we've got. Cause that iteration pain is so huge. So like, are you finding that people are willing to have those iteration uh, conversations? Is it that the, the developer side are very, very open to it and the consumer side, are not as open to it like h- how are you finding those conversations and then let's wrap in kind of what you were talking about brownfield versus greenfield where you know it's it's even more complex of trying to i to me i almost think that the greenfield is a little bit more complex cuz the brownfield it's like we've got this stuff like there are realities you have to face realities versus greenfield so just talked at you a lot there but would love to, to kind of hear you, what your experience has been and what your thoughts are and what your advice might be to to people that are going through similar
1: yeah i think sure that you know there's a few ways we can go at it um and maybe what what can give you the most value and the most reward is is maybe Reverse engineer it. You know, come at it from from the outputs. Um, and when I say the outputs, I mean, yeah, let's think about the the consumers of that data. Let's you know define the the personas of of who is going to consume our data product. You know, a, a data scientist, uh, a CEO. You know, everything in between, whatever. But you know, let, let's go and seek out those people. You know, maybe a handful of those people to begin with ask them what it is that they want from this solution. don't ask them what they require just ask them what they want you know just give them the freedom to say you know they you know they want everything you know unicorns and bells and whistles and all of it um, but at least it gives you something to aim for. So you know you, you start by asking those personas those people that are going to consume it what they want you, you use that to inform where you go with your minimum viable, whatever, Um, you then maybe come at it from the other end and look at your inputs and say, you know, fine, well, what data actually do I have available? You know, what what can I get from my source systems and what do I need to do to it? Is it a source system that's, you know, so remote and it sits on some third-party database system that no one's ever heard of and we need to use an ADBC driver or something really painful to interact with it? You know, and, and that can that can maybe inform some of your pragmatism because if you know 90 percent of your valuable data is locked up in a source system that's really hard to get to then yeah that that might dictate what you have to build or you know all of your valuable data is in a source system that's really easy but know, yeah, there's just that 10 percent that's in a source system that's difficult to get to again it, it informs what you're going to do so yeah, that's kind of like input versus output if we then think about the the glue in the middle the, the process, then um, what I tend to do is is use a, a technical capability map that's you know it's got everything on it from things that you alluded to earlier around governance and security but then it's got you know like a, a menu a menu of what your platform is going to deliver things in there like okay is it going to be batch process data? or is it gonna be more real-time streaming data? Are you going to want to create a, a data model out of it? Do you need a semantic layer? You know, what what else is gonna go into this platform? Do you need that virtualization layer? Do you need uh, event-driven processing? You know, is it a Lambda or a Kappa architecture that you're aiming for? You know, all of those uh, technical capabilities that could be put into the middle will then also kind of inform what you're going to do so yeah kind of maybe three ways to go about it that that input process and output to try and touch on uh, a few of them to to inform what you do
0: how are you finding those conversations where you are stressing the pragmatism right like because historically we have had requirements requests right like and then that goes to the data team the data team, you know, the data engineering team or whatever, and then they go to the producers and they try and communicate. And, you know, it's kind of that office space thing of, you know, I take the freaking requests from the engineers and I take them from the customers to the engineers. I'm a people person, right? Like how do we kind of get ourselves out of, of being in that that middle and getting them to, to directly communicate and then kind of working with both sides to talk about, okay, well, you want X, you know, you talk about that 90-10, is that 10% of the data the most valuable? Or can you say, hey, it's going to take us a month and, you know, a hundred person hours to, or, you know, a thousand person hours or whatever to get to that 90%, that extra 10% is going to take another five months. So you know, are you going to pay for that extra five months? Do you want to wait that five months or is that data really that valuable to you? And if, if it is okay, like, let's talk about that. But if it's not, you know, being able to just not say, here's your list of what things that you want, like what, what is, how, how have you kind of moved forward into that negotiation instead of, um, Ask setting or that requirements document instead of like the actual conversation of let's let's become practical, let's get pragmatic.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, business value, you know, is always a good sort of north star on on some of this stuff. Yeah, what what is going to give us the most value from from this data? You know, it is always definitely a good test. Um, you know, to to your point earlier around sensitive data, we could easily deliver you know a a whole bunch of of stuff in there and and get value from it but yeah somebody says oh it it would be nice if we had the the sensitive data in there as well but of course you know that that's going to take a a massive load of governance and security and anonymization of records blah 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 and um you know so you you then yeah you, you have to say to somebody that that sensitive data you might find it useful in your reports uh, you might need it to go and tell so and so to stop doing something to improve performance or whatever but yeah if, if that's the only requirement then yeah that it's not worth the technical effort in delivering it and I think you you end up being just a, a translator a translator between the people with the demand or, or the ask or the business requirement and, you know, the translator to then the, the technical effort it takes to deliver it. You know, I, I sit between the yeah, the the person that wants the output and, and maybe the, the scrum master that's got to do the refinement on his backlog and say, okay, well, we've got a whole bunch of stuff. You know, we've got a two-week sprint. Are we going to be able to deliver that value for this person that's asking for it? Um And then, you know, if all else fails, we just come back to, well, who's going to shout the loudest? Who's the most senior? Who's got the most budget within the organization to deliver it? Um, You know, if we're building something on a cloud platform that's pay-as-you-go, who's going to pay for it? Um, You know, that's always a, a good indicator as well. That's, you know, sensitive data handling it could require a, a massive load of technical work and engineering and it could mean that the the running cost of your platform you know triples or, or whatever so you suddenly you say well fine we can do this but your running cost is going to triple do you still want it you know you, you can ask lots of probing questions like that to to really sort of tease out do you really want this do you really need this
0: so are, one, one thing that some people have talked about and and i think it's It tends to be when there's less complicated of data products, right? Especially when it's the the single table or a view instead of a full data set and and things like that. And you know, we can get into whether that's really data mesh or not. I I don't really care at the end of the day. I'm like the whole point of what I'm trying to do with all of this stuff with data mesh and the community and all that is get to a place where people can understand how to get good value out of their data and that it's not so hard and that we're we're not banging our head against the, the wall. Um, but a lot of people have talked about getting themselves entirely, you know, if you're you're that translator, that more and more you're getting yourself more and more out of the conversation. And so it becomes a negotiation between the producer and the consumer. Like, are you finding that, you know, as you go along, you still have to be in those conversations? Or are you finding that, um, you know, more and more that those conversations are happening Where you're kind of stepping in to give some information, but not saying what this person means is and what this person means, you know, that translator versus that kind of attache of like, hey, let me add some additional color versus you two are talking completely different languages. Are you finding that that's actually the case or are you finding that that's the hopeful case and it's not really the case in most instances or or what, what are you actually seeing from your experiences?
1: It, it feels like kind of all of the above, actually. I think, um, it, it comes down to, in some cases, the, maybe the the culture within the business, you know, are, are they really data driven? Um, it comes down to some of the the, the technical ability, the skill sets, or, or you know the the influence that the 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 C level people in the industry have. You know, do they appreciate what it means to get that insight from it? Um, it comes down to the, the maturity of the platform that you've delivered. You know, if there's a platform that that's very mature which means that there's low friction to actually onboarding a new data set, it's very easy, you know, then uh, I'm not required because you know the the hard work has been done to actually deliver that that product as a, a service as a platform. So it means you yeah, know the we we've done that upfront engineering work and it's it means that there's less friction. If yeah it's more of a a brownfield type solution where onboarding a new data set from maybe a a third party like SAP or something, um, not to be too critical, of course, but, you know, getting a new data set via SAP BW or something like that can be a huge effort and and require a lot of people involved and a lot of friction. And, you know, you then do need to be that translator in the room sometimes. So... uh, I feel like uh, I'm giving you a, a long answer of it depends, but um, I guess hopefully through some of that narrative we can we can figure out yeah what that actually depends on, and I think it's it's a mixture. It's all very subjective.
0: Are, are, but are you seeing like it's it's kind of the is there a hope at the is there a light at the end of the tunnel question of are you seeing that as you're working with with clients that as they move forward with their own data mesh maturity that, that you are becoming less and less that translator, or is it, is it really, really situ- situationally dependent, not just on like on the client itself, each client is completely different. And so you're having to play that translator role, even in, you know, I mean, I don't I don't think you're at year three or year four of delivering data mesh to anybody, but, um, that, uh, are you seeing that it becomes less and less necessary and that those conversations start from that negotiation point and that, that there is less of a need for translator or is it very, very situationally dependent on, like you said, like what is the actual situation with the, um, the, production side and with the consumption side of, do you need something very complicated on the consumption side? Or if the production side is very, very complicated, no matter what, even if they're the most advanced client you've got, there still needs to be a significant amount of translation to be like, this this is incredibly difficult. Let's, let's get to where we can get to some value uh, sooner, but that this is going to be a long, long-term process. Uh-
1: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be optimistic. I'm going to say that, yes, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, a, a, an example recently, you know, we, we had a bunch of source systems. Um, we looked at the underlying database technologies for them. We found that the majority of the source systems were actually sat on SQL server instances. So, you know, fine, you, you do the upfront engineering work that says, well, this is the, the majority of the tech I've got to work with. Let's create an ingestion pattern and, and handling for that, that type of source system, SQL Server. Um, and then, of course, it means that you've got all of that work and it's done. And then, um, you know, as we hopefully move towards that that light in the tunnel, that somebody comes along in, in six months' time and says, hey, I, I've got a new source system here. I say, fine, what's it running on? They say, SQL Server. They say, no problem. You know, we, we've got that in our marketplace already. And you know, if if we're following some of that that data mesh theory of reducing the the requirement on that hyper specialized skill that that may be that person or something that we need to create to get data out of that SQL Server database in this case, then you know the, the that's done. It, it becomes easier. So so yeah, the, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel as the platform evolves and as the platform matures. And, you know, uh, the, the software and the, the technology that we use matures as well. I think we we do end up getting there. It does become easier, or at least I hope so.
0: I, I think Henrik Gothberg, again, had talked about, um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to have a couple of episodes on this um, coming up, I think, on chasing reusability, mm. right? Because the more that you can say, okay, look, 80-20 principle, you know, Pareto principle, like – of the time, this is going to be applicable, like just find those and automate as many of those as possible so that you don't have friction. And so that if somebody wants to bring on a new data set and it's not complicated or complex, you know, they can do that in, you know, sometimes a couple of days, right? Where, Where you go, okay, we're going to bring on a new data set. Okay. We've got kind of an idea. We've got a consumer for it. Hey, boom, we're gonna do that, and we can measure people using it because a lot of data isn't that complicated. It's just we don't have the CICD and the everything there. And then then you can spend your time on the the things that are trickier, right? But we just haven't had uh in data what I find when I talk to people historically, we just haven't had that like repeatability. Um and, and uh reusability is not something that people have focused on enough. And it's 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 crazy to me, like coming at it from kind of more the software um development side of the world of that we just haven't really thought of of how to do that. But it's 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 good that data mesh is is spurring a lot of those conversations. But whether you're doing data mesh or not, you should be doing <laughs> that type of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, in um in in a sense, we use the analogy of of crawling, walking, and running. You know, and, and what does that look like for for each part of what we're trying to do? And uh, you know, for the the data engineer type persona, then then absolutely, I see that you know you you crawl when you know you start writing some code. You know, you, you create some assets and things, and a few reusable functions or whatever that you've got. And, you know, you then start to run, and you get that those you know those reusable libraries those those templates you get some metadata that starts driving what you're doing and you know you you run and then you know you get a full configuration driven template that's very sort of cookie cutter you know stamp it out and and you're good to go so yeah I I see that evolution happening and absolutely it's something that in data I agree we've had an absence of and and yeah, I think it's it's good that the the data mesh principles that we've got are um, making us think about that.
0: Yeah, I think the concept of data as a product is so much broader than than data mesh in general. Um, so and that's originally the concept was for the podcast was going to be um, data as a product in general, and then data mesh was going to be maybe one of the episodes a week, and just kind of decided not to to go down that because there just wasn't as much kind of practitioner advice um, within the data mesh content I was seeing. But um, so one question that that kind of dovetails nicely off what we've been talking about, but might also be a difficult question to kind of put you on the spot on. But um, there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out what is a data product. And every company is kind of looking at this differently um and you know if, is that a table a review or is that a full data set is that you know what what is actually necessary here and, and I think it's fine to have even if you've got like a lot of ones where data sets, you know complex data sets are your data products, if you've got one where the only need is a is a table a review then fine that's a data product right <laughs> but like what do you see as as when you think about well I guess, two long questions that you know you can you can expound upon for quite a bit but like what do you think of that of of looking at that crawl walk run for what needs to be for each part like that minimum viable for a data product and then maybe you can wrap in at after that as well how you start to think about that on the data platform side, like what are the crawl things so that you can start to move, you can get moving forward, you can get towards value. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't, you can, you can head towards your North star, but like when you think about it on a data product level and a a data platform level, let's start with the data product, but like what, what are the crawl, walk, run of what you need to have in place? Kind of talked about that a little bit, but would love to kind of hear your definition of a data product and how you kind of get towards that evolution iterate
1: yeah yeah it's a really good question um and and yeah it's it can be a difficult one to answer and <laughs> I, I i've seen i've seen my customers answer it and then seen of course what what they've done and what they think about as a data product but um I, i'm gonna i'm gonna go sort of i'm gonna take a tangent and and say maybe the the way I would answer it of of what is a data product i would say any any data that you need to answer a question that you have so yeah if if the question is you know what was my sales last month or what was my total what was my profit you know yeah you've got um, a set of questions like that and you want to get the answers for them I would say that anything that we can create that answers those questions for that person with that with that need and that, that need to answer them, for me, that, that becomes uh, uh, almost a, a data product, uh, you know, in its simplest form. It's, it's just the ability of something to answer some questions that you have. Now, it could be that, you know, you, you have a, a data product that, of course, can answer 100 different questions. Um, but, you know, you, you've got to start, I think, with at least one question. And you know, you, you start with one question, and, and always I think is the case that once somebody has answered one question with some data, it always ends up spawning ten more questions. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and, and hopefully that that's in a, a data-driven environment that that would be expected. But yeah, I, I would say to to try and be maybe hopefully not overly simplistic about it, but yeah, a data product is it's it's that ability to answer a question or, or many questions and yeah, maybe we, we try and quantify it and say, okay, you've got 10 questions, go and get the the bits of data that you need to answer those 10 questions and then we can say to you, okay, fine, we, we can call that your data product. Um, but absolutely, um, answering those 10 questions could come from a single table. You know, I think that's fine. Uh, I, I don't really care, you know, how those questions are answered, what the underlying tech or, or what even it looks like. But if you're satisfied with the answers you get, then you know, fine. You let, let's let's go with that. What,
0: what would take it from data to a data product, right? Like especially in a data mesh concept, because we talked about that single data run. That's not a data product, right? At least not in my mind. That's not at all, right? So that can answer the questions if somebody asked it today, I can go and tell you, this is what our sales were yesterday, but they come back to it the next day. And, you know, then do I have to do that same data run and it's a manual run and things like that? Like what takes it from data to the actual product concept, especially inside data mesh, right? Like what does it have to have uh, certain CICD concepts does it have to have certain reusability concepts does it have to have you know observability and SLAs and all that or what like what what takes it from being kind of that initial stage of, of v0.1 to a v1.0 to a v2.0 right and that's kind of maybe the crawl the walk the run
1: yeah, uh, and and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, your you, your your data becomes your your information, your knowledge, your power, whatever. And, and yeah, that that's fine. But it, it's about that that scalability of that environment, that that consistency that you bring, um, the the platform and all of its reusability that you bring, yeah, the the standard set of interfaces that you've got within your mesh, the ability to publish a data set to a marketplace that exists on that mesh, that means that because you've answered your questions, you know, it it means that others might have similar questions and they can go to that marketplace. They can find that data set that you've onboarded and they can also use it, you know, so it's not just about onboarding it because you had that singular requirement. It's about making that data available for everybody in that mesh ecosystem, which I think is is the the difference there. You know, it's it's a product that's been publicized for everybody to use. It just happens to be that, say, you were the first person that had the question that needed answering. So, I think that's the probably the distinction I would make.
0: So, like, if I'm getting kind of technical on it, I mean, like, does it need a presumably needs to have metadata about what is the data so that it can be understandable i mean is it just kind of the the you know jamac has kind of eight principles about being discoverable and understandable and all that stuff is it just that or is there like additional things that you think that make it so that that where again the the crawl and then like how do you how do you evolve it I, I know it's a difficult question because it's such a broad broad question but it also can feel extremely overly specific question but like I, what i'm finding is in my conversations with people especially you know not on the podcast almost every company is extremely having extreme difficulty in defining what is a data product and what isn't a data product so, like, do you have even just some advice on people for, for people that are trying to share that with not with their consumers, but with their producers? Like, so they can understand what they what what they owe when you know, what 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 is your homework? <laughs> what are your your uh, checkboxes that you need to ma- meet before you can say that this is data mesh ready, even at that crawl phase?
1: Yeah, I, I think the um, yeah the, the discoverable, the the reliable, the consistent, the yeah you know, all of those things I think are absolutely true. But I, I think what we should also kind of add into the equation there is is you know a time element to it. Is this data actually valuable? Yeah, you know, it was valuable at the point I needed it, but is it then valuable? Uh, you know, in in the long term is that data going to be used forever? Um, you know, just because you answered that one question, is that one question now going to become a metric on the the CEO's dashboard that he receives on his phone every Monday morning or whatever? You know, so th- there's a time element to that. And I think, you've, yes, you've got your data that's consistent, discoverable. It, it's got all of the, the platform goodness around it, which meant that, you know, you, you could get it and you could onboard it. But yeah I, I think if you do that and it maybe it then becomes about yes it's it's a data product if you've demonstrated value from that data you've demonstrated some some revenue that's now been generated because of that insight that you've gained I think it's almost feels like um, maybe you know to, to use like a fake news analogy or something that if you've onboarded a data set that, isn't valuable it it doesn't get used by everybody then i'd probably take the stance of well you know that's that's not a a good product that's not a data product that that's just data noise maybe (laughs) let's call it that you know it's data noise within the mesh that um isn't helping anybody so the value in time is is perhaps how how i would kind of test that definition
0: and and kind of same question of, of what, what I'm trying to get towards is there is, well, I guess it's that technical purity question, right? Of what can we get out that's that V0.1? And so when we think about that on the platform side, like what, what do you think is necessary to have on the platform side? Is it a... a you know, I mean, you, it, it is chicken and egg. So you can't say to have a data platform, you need to have the templates on how to get out data until you realize, until you start to work with what your initial data products are. So, but like, if we're talking about that V0.1, that kind of proof of value, not just the proof of concept of getting a single data product out, but like proof of value of a mesh, like what do you think is are the things that people have to to put in there, and what are the things that they can kind of jury rig up front, and that they just have to set themselves to iterate to improve over time?
1: Yeah, it's it, it's hard. Um, I, I feel like uh, another analogy is maybe required, uh, like a, a car or something. But um, I. I sometimes think about, uh, I, I've spoken about a data mesh is like a car and, and the data products are the wheels, you know, you, a, a car works best with four wheels, you know, <laughs> so you, you've got that as a, a minimum, maybe, maybe you have to have four data products. Um, and then, you know, if we think about the, the chassis of the car, the engine, the steering wheel, the doors, whatever, you know, it's, it's, yeah, what, what does that mean to us in terms of that technical platform? And. Um, you know we, we have to have resources that we can easily deploy we, we have to have ingestion processors to, to get the data in of course we have to have uh, means of, of discovering the data and, and getting the output from it we have to have a, a query plane we have to have that ability for those users the consumers to be able to get to that data and I think there is if you, know, if you really want to scale and, and you do want to iterate, it does feel like that, that that's, um, entry level data mesh environment, that entry level data mesh architecture, you know, that, that entry level is really high. It's a really high bar to try and hit even as a, a minimum viable solution. So uh, yeah, there's obviously a whole bunch of stuff in there. And I think about the Azure tech, uh, a lot and um, my customers, you know, they, they want the networking and the infrastructure, they, they don't want anything to be using public endpoints. So you know, that ends up becoming a minimum viable requirement. Um, they have to have a security model, they have to have all of the log telemetry for the, the operational reporting. You know, so so suddenly depending on the, the customer you work with and, and Greenfield versus Brownfield the, the platform suddenly becomes a, a massive thing. And, and, you know, maybe we're, we're going, we're circling a little bit on that, but it's, yeah, there, there, there really is so much in there to make a minimum viable data mesh that's, as I said earlier, it's hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is part of why Jamak and I have t- talked about if you're actually doing, like what Jamak has talked about with data mesh, like if you're a thousand person company, almost hundred percent of the time it's, it's too high of a, of a cost to really go down this road, but you can get value where you don't like where, where if you're constantly actually asking and, and thinking about that negotiation aspect of what don't we need to do, right? Like what isn't the value add right now, set ourselves up so we can add it when we need it. But like, what where where can we get to our return on investment, not just our return, right? like a hundred person company implementing a data mesh would presumably have a very high return on that data mesh, but the cost is going to be fifty x what the return is. So yes, you're going to get more value out of your data, but like your actual cost of it it it's not worth it versus you know for a much larger company you do have to to think about that. But then your your required investment with size and complexity and and kind of situation increases constantly. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's a difficult question to ask. And that's, you know, I said I'm, I'm putting you on the spot a bit on it cause it just kind of came to mind.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, you yeah, to, know, to try and offer a different perspective as well, you know, if, if we think about a, a, gra- a brownfield type environment, you know, a, a customer has got, say, siloed teams operating they've they've got you know the, these disparate data products maybe that are out there uh, and and what you do is you you do a gap analysis you find that actually for you know for 10 of the data products they're using the same data source and you say to them oh, well actually instead of duplicating that data for your you know, your, your isolated um, data products let's bring them together into a, a mesh And let's, you know, you you share that data from the the one domain that is going to own it. And, you know, this is good. You you think about that. Um, But actually even trying to do that as well, I think becomes hard because it means that what those other data products have to stop consuming that data source and then get it from this new central place. Not central, but, you know, get it from the, the right data domain. And I think even that sometimes becomes a refactoring exercise that somebody will ultimately ask the question and say, Okay, fine. I, I've done this. I'm now adopting this this domain orientated principle of getting the data that I need. What was the value in me doing that? And you know, the only real thing you can quantify, other than all of the development efforts and engineering effort in, in getting there, is say, well, actually, now your running costs are, are slightly reduced because you're not duplicating this data set. You know, and the, the source system, its workload is now easier. You're not overburdening that source system because you get the data once for the, the domain that becomes the owner of it. It feels like yeah, it's it's the same answer, but maybe a slightly different scenario of a, a brownfield, and, and yeah, the same answer of it's 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 high and it's hard.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That that the um when the output to a consumer really hasn't changed, you know, they're like, why do I care? And it's like, well, if you only care about this one single point of what you were doing, maybe you don't. But in the greater scheme. You're going to have better access to better data, with more understandability, with more uh, reliability and quality, and you know all this stuff. But you know, if they are just saying, "Well, what have you done for me lately?" constantly, then that's a uh, that that can be a uh, a challenge. Um, I, I think that's kind of the same thing on the producer side of trying to get people bought in that they need to produce. It's like. Well, if we all do this, and it's like, yeah, but you're asking me to do this right now. I don't care what, what happens if we all do this. I care that you're asking me to do this right now. And so, yeah, um, I, th- I think it's a, a difficult question to to answer and, and kind of there isn't. It, it all is. It depends.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, business value add
0: versus technical efforts, I think, to
1: get there. Is, yeah. is obviously the that, that Venn diagram almost of, you know, and, and where's the overlap and, yeah, what do we actually need to do? What's the
0: roadmap? Yeah, measuring the actual value of the data is, is incredibly difficult. And so trying to have that return on investment conversation of, like, what is our return? When? You know, internal rate of return. You know, how quickly do we get to that? And what's the, uh, you know, value that this actually adds and what are we actually going to spend investing to get there? It's, it's all, it's, it's fun, uh, finance conversations, which technical people tech, uh, typically do not like to have as somebody who is the finance person embedded in a technical organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So often it becomes a, a reactive thing, doesn't it? We're, we're trying to, we're, we're reacting to something that means we're trying to predict something from happening, uh, you know, um machine maintenance or something like that we're we're trying to predict it going wrong so we try and stop
0: it yeah yeah exactly so well uh paul this has been really really great so um you know is there anything that you kind of want to let people know about or or is there any like summation of the conversation i mean typically the answer is no it's impossible to just put a button on an hour long conversation but is there anything that you think that you you'd kind of uh, give us kind of a summation wrapping up point to, to people to really think about like kind of your main philosophy or, or if not, you know, we can kind of just jump into where people can find you and get in touch with you. But, uh,
1: um, yeah, I think I, I would say, uh, I don't claim to have all the answers. Um, I don't claim that there's a perfect solution out there yet. Uh, I think I would just say, you know, to to keep a a growth mindset of let's figure it out together. We've got, uh, certainly we've got a a very rich, um, we've got a very rich data community that we can all call upon and knowledge share and things. And that's, I guess, what I'm doing via my blog. And I do put in a lot of my blog posts that I, I'm I'm writing this blog post to get my own thoughts in order because the, these things are hard and uh, I don't mind going first, being wrong, and you know failing fast together with our, our learning approach to it as well. So I think that's maybe how I would summarize the topic at the moment of, of let's let's figure it out together, and we we will make mistakes along the way.
0: Yeah, that's why the data mesh community is literally called data mesh learning. Like that's the whole point is that we're, we're we're not at a thing where it's like data mesh knowledge sharing. It's, it, you know uh, that, you know, certain people have all the answers. Nobody's got all the answers and we're, we're figuring it out. You know, Schmack, uh said something uh, on a, an interview uh, recently that we're way, way, way um, early, even for, what are the patterns, not even what are best practice patterns or what are typical patterns or what are the, we're still very, very early. So getting people to kind of share that stuff is very, very valuable. So, um, so uh, speaking of, of your blog, I'll drop that in the show notes as well as uh, a a link to where where do you want people kind of getting in touch with you? And what do you want people kind of following up with you about, you know, is that LinkedIn or Twitter, you know, your, your blog or what, what, what do you kind of want people reaching out about?
1: Um, I guess, yeah, I don't mind. Whatever they're comfortable, um, I, I use the handle of Mr. Paul Andrew. And, and I, you know, I use that for, for my blog, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, GitHub, whatever. You know, um, I use Mr. Paul Andrew for everything across the board. So, yeah, reach out to me. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on my recent Data Mesh blogs as well.
0: Like I said, I'll drop a, a link to that in the in the show notes as well. So, But, uh, Paul, this has been really, really great. And I, I really thank you for taking the time. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Paul Andrew, a technical architect at Avanade and a Microsoft Data Platform MVP. As per usual, you can find Paul's contact information as well as a link to his blog posts about data mesh in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.